Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Rohan Patel, Investment Advisor from Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, Head of Multi-Asset Funds, who will be providing a market summary and also discussing UK and US central bank policy, the outlook for oil, our view on gold, and also conclude with the synopsis of the recent US-China summit. Uh, We're recording the podcast from our homes today on Monday, the 29th of November. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Afternoon, Ben. Hope you're well. Very well, thank you. Good. Um, so let's dive straight in, Ben. I mean, uh, it's been a very volatile into the last week uh, with the discovery of the new mutated COVID strain Omicron uh, and the global restrictions have been brought into place over the weekend. Could you provide a synopsis and also how it's affected uh, affected the markets? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, worth highlighting yet again, uh, we're recording sort of in the midst of, uh, of uncertainty and things going on. Um, and markets really, you know, if you, if you look at what happened over most of November, obviously we're on the 29th today, so we've got most of the month, but it's all been dominated by what's happened in the last few business days with uh, with the discovery of this new variant. Um, the market themselves has been a little disrupted, so we're, we're recording relatively early on the Monday. The US has been closed for an extended period thanks to Thanksgiving, so it's a bit difficult to, to get a real handle on where the numbers lie. Unsurprisingly, though, you know, with any sort of uh, big market risk-off events. Um, you know, the, the typical movements we saw on, on Friday when uh, most main markets were open, certainly for, for pretty much the, the full day. Um, a sharp sell in equities, you know, UK equities were down 3.5% on the day. Oil fell quite significantly, down uh, a little bit over 10%, your standard sort of risk-off uh, moves. And then, you know, following the weekend, some ideas that maybe it's not quite so bad, amid all the uncertainty, a little bit of a bounce. And we're sort of seeing that wash through, and that's probably going to uh, stay in the markets for a period of time, just given uh, given the uncertainty. Um, I will, of course, talk about the, the, the variant in a second, but just looking at some of the other asset classes, what I think was interesting, whereas you had the risk off uh, or your traditional risky assets act as you'd expect in a risk-off environment, equities and, and oil hit. Actually, things like gold and government bonds that are traditionally used to safe havens, I mean, they firmed up uh, a bit, quite a bit, but perhaps not as much as one might historically expect. I think you know that's the thing we've, we've talked about uh, repeatedly, uh, things like the Greenspan puts, the idea that central banks will always ride to your rescue. I think some of that is now a little bit imperiled, and it does just hint around the edges, things we've been talking about for a while, as we look at sort of the, the the new potential monetary policy regime, traditional safe havens may not perform quite the same function they have done in in the recent past. But again, it is all noise. And if you look at the month of a hot as a whole, yes, we've had some shocks over the last few days. But overall, sort of as I as I look today, UK equities, yes, they're down, but only one point four percent. Euros down sort of two and a half percent. Emerging markets down 3.3. Not a huge move overall. Those shocks towards the end come as we tend to see in markets that sort of drifting 
steadily higher. Um, US equities, we're obviously still waiting to see what the numbers look like coming out of, uh, of the Thanksgiving period. 10-year UK gilt yields, they're 16 basis points lower, last seen at 0.87. Um, and US Treasuries barely changed at sort of 1.5%. Gold uh, is up only 0.4%, last seen at 1,790, so still below that 1800 mark. The bigger move, the biggest movers um, were actually oil. Oil is still down about 10% uh, for the month overall. Uh, Brent crude oil last seen at $76.23. It's really been the US dollar that has has gained the most, a uh, big sort of surge there. That's up 2.5% on the month against, broadly against sort of sterling and the euro last seen at a 1 euro 33. But not huge moves. Um, overall, um, a, a sort of a bit of a round trip of a month in many senses, again, aside from, from oil and, and the currency fluctuations. As I said, it all comes down to, to this new COVID variant called Omicron. I'm sure uh, everyone is now very familiar uh, with that because it's been all over the news for the last few days and it's given rise to a lot of uncertainty and that uncertainty is going to persist. And I think what you'll probably see is markets swinging around, really undulating as a sentiment swings around on what little real information there is. And the reason people are worried, we talk about variations, we talk about uh, mutations. Um, so this variant, just in terms of, of the number of uh, mutations, so Omicron has about 50 in all, 32 of them are on the spike protein. That, that's the sort of bit that juts out for, from the virus itself, is used to uh, sort of engage with uh, cells in the human body. And of those, on the very end, you have this uh, receptor binding domain. That's sort of the first contact. That's the bit that really sticks on to the cells it's going to infect. And that's got 10 mutations on. Uh, when that's a lot, and that compares to, there's, for example, there's two uh, mutations on the receptor binding domain for, for the Delta variant. This is significantly more, and that's what's giving rise to this uncertainty. Now, no one knows really uh, what effects these mutations will have. Um, but I think a lot of people are assuming, because there are so many, and obviously your immune system, uh, the, the more mutations there are sometimes, particularly on those bits that stick out, the harder it can be for the immune system to recognise them. And that's why there, there's some concern sort of in the scientific community that might help it uh, evade some of the immune response that may mitigate some of the, the, the potential activity of vaccines also some of uh, some protective measures you get from prior infection. It increases the risk of reinfection, essentially. Some people also think it might spread more easily. Some of those senses from just looking at what's been happening in South Africa, where it's first identified. And that's what caused the initial shock. Now, since then, what we don't know, the severity of the, the disease it may call, but also how some of our, our, our other defences against COVID-19 may come into play. And even though there's a question mark over the effectiveness of current vaccines, and again, we're not going to know that for a while, the things I would say that are, are, are perhaps on the positive side, so we've got all of the negatives, lots of mutations potentially, maybe it spreads more easily, maybe existing uh, protections mitigate. But I think really against that, if you look at where we've moved, we've got much better surveillance than we used to have, crucially, in the last sort of couple of months. We've seen a rapid increase in these antiviral drugs. So those are drugs, some of which are in pill form, that you can take to try and combat the effects once you've already got it. These are small molecule drugs, so there's a potential positivity there. But also, as we did talk about um, well, around about 12 months ago, when that, those first vaccines came online, 
these new mRNA vaccines are actually a bit of a, uh, of a platform technology. So it's not, it takes a while to, to develop, but we also highlighted they are relatively straightforward to turn around. And already we have the vaccine makers suggesting that if needed, they could create some adapted vaccines probably in the first quarter of next year. So it is finely balanced. Obviously, there was a lot of shock on Friday, some of the, the rebound since then. The reality, of course, is we're not going to know for many weeks, possibly even a few months, the, the full ramifications. And as you know, we have this sort of information vacuum, the markets may well overreact to, to, to positive and negative news as it comes through. That's something we have seen over the last sort of year or so, but it's something we're going to have to again keep a, a close eye on, and it might drive some of that short-term sentiment in markets. Yeah, quite surprised the way the market's actually bounced um, bounced today. Obviously, just probably just discounting some uh, some 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 possible good news from uh, vaccine makers. But let's see. No, thanks for that, Ben. So, uh, Bank of England obviously they met early in November, um, and the market was widely widely predicting that they would uh, they'd raise rates. Now, uh, what's the outlook going forward, and and, and how will the uh, recent developments affect this? Well, absolutely, and you know, I think. We we highlighted last month that the market was favouring an increase, but again, it was only in the mid-50s, mid to high 50% probabilities, and was far from the dead cert that many have been highlighting. And in the end, the Bank of England held rates, um, so disappointing some. But I think if you look at it, it's worth remembering, unlike the Federal Reserve, so in the US, they're very clear with their forward guidance and they try and really carefully calibrate market expectations. That could be a positive in some some regards. You have some sort of clear sense of what the central bank's going to do. Uh, I would argue it's got negative connotations as well because it creates the, the illusion of certainty in what are un, inherently uncertain market conditions. The Bank of England clearly didn't manage those expectations, um, so some were disappointed. And I think the main reasons for holding off, obviously, uh, last month, the furlough scheme had only just come to an end so I think the Bank of England wanted to hold off a little bit before acting to see how some of that comes through, really seeing how, how some of the, the shorter term dynamics played out when they settled down, um, some concerns over inflation mixed in there as well. Um, but how transitory it was, was a little uncertain. So the Bank of England has opted to buy itself a little bit more time. Actually, straight after the announcement, when they said, you know, we're not really looking to do too much, uh, maybe... Uh, think again in the next meeting, even if the rhetoric coming out acted to dampen some of those expectations so that the hike expectations for the subsequent meeting fell back a little bit as well. Uh, those, of course, have moved quite quickly over the last weekend. So now the market is implying only a sort of 30 to 40% chance, so less than 50% chance, less than evens of a hike in, in December. But the market is still anticipating uh, a hike potentially at the next meeting, which actually comes uh, in February next year. So we have December and then we, we sort of uh, jump to February at the next point that we think maybe that they would choose to act. Um, and really, as, as I've probably highlighted before, it doesn't fundamentally change our investment strategy. And, you know, in the short term, we can all take views on, is it this month? Is it next month? Is it in three or four months time? But generally, from an investment point of view, taking a, a medium to longer term view, the exact point of liftoff doesn't really matter. It's more about the direction, the magnitude. And I think you know, it doesn't matter if it's December, February, or even halfway through next year that, that rates start to take off. The medium term outlook for us certainly is that interest rates are only headed one way and that's up. Uh, and the bank is going to have to carefully calibrate that hiking they're going to try and achieve, I think, 
probably into strength. Um, but, you know, on a medium term view, that that's the trajectory. And, and you know, the exact timing is probably less relevant to, to our, our strategies and their success or otherwise. What about the um, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve? Ben? I mean, how, uh, how does the renomination of Jerome Powell um, affect uh, affect their outlook? Yeah, so well, we, we had recently the news that the Jay Powell is going to be renominated back as uh, as Fed chair. This restores a sort of tradition. Historically, presidents haven't churned their, their chairs too much. I mean, Jay Powell is is broadly a Republican. He was appointed by Donald Trump as uh, a Republican president. But actually, he's proven to be fairly pragmatic. He's got strong support on both sides. Um, I think some of the Democrats or some of the more progressive elements of the Democratic Party were hoping to get a chair put in that maybe matched some of their more progressive ideals. That didn't happen, but there's enough support. I think that he'll be, uh, be, be reinstated. Worth remembering that even though the president gets to nominate or re-nominate, it still needs to go through a confirmation process with the US Senate. But it's pretty likely that, that Jay Power will, will achieve that. And really what it gives us is continued continuity. It's an, got a relatively known quantity in the current chair. He's it's clearly signalled uh, how he's guiding the committee and where, and where they're expecting to come through. So I think as a continuity candidate, uh, he, he brings a lot of positives. I think there's a couple of interesting factors just beneath the surface. And this is more structurally within US Federal Reserve. So there were two people really in the frame towards the end. One was, of course, Jay Powell. The other is someone who's already uh, on, on the board, um, but that's Lael Brainard. And she's actually been nominated for the vice chair position that brings her quite a lot of authority. So I think that that perhaps is a bit of a play to some of the more progressive elements of, uh, of the Democratic Party. In particular, uh, Brainard is a, a big fan of relatively tighter regulation on the banks as well. And that's a, a bit of a hot button topic in the US. So I think that brings some, uh, some element in there as well that might make her, her confirmation hearings a little bit tougher from, from some of the Republicans, but she will likely get through as well. But more broadly, if we look over the next 12 months, there are actually quite a few appointments coming up at the US Federal Reserve. And those are appointments that, that uh, President Joe Biden will be able to put his nominations towards. So over the next 12 months, broadly, Biden actually has quite a lot of scope to try and uh, add some potential influence and add a few more uh, people that he's in favour of to the central bank. So, you know, relatively a series of relatively small moves. But over time, that can have have an impact. It's worth remembering the Federal Reserve doesn't just look after interest rates as a much broader remit as well. So there, there, there's lots of interest in there. But in the short term, um, Chair Powell continuing on uh, just really brings continuity to the outlook. Excellent. Thanks, Ben. And, um, um, and moving on to um, the topic of oil, President Biden recently announced that the, the Department of Energy will release 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, basically to help lower prices. Um, is it likely to have much effect? That's a very good question. And I think, well, the the initial market reaction was actually pretty negative. Um, so this was announced. The, the oil price initially barely moved and actually it ticked up over the course of the day. So if uh, the US's intention was to cool oil prices, that certainly didn't work. Obviously, since then, um, the, the, the news of, uh, of the Omicron variant has, has had a much bigger influence. But at the time, it, it didn't really move the market all that much. I mean, 50 million barrels sounds like a lot. But in reality, uh, you know, a lot of this is on an exchange basis. So it does need to be uh, replaced relatively quickly. 
And it only equates to about two and a half days of consumption in the US. And this is already going to be over a period of many months. And I think it was a little bit smaller than expected. Now, it is being done in, in conjunction with other countries. It's worth highlighting. Um, but by far, the US is, is, is doing the, the lion's share of the action on this. So compared to the 50 million in the US, you know, the UK is releasing 1.5 million. India's releasing 5 million. So pretty small fry overall. So in terms of will this release change the price in and of itself in terms of the supply and demand dynamic? Probably not. But I wouldn't be entirely negative if your view instead is that rather than resolving this in and of itself, it's actually intended as more of a signaling mechanism, then I think that can be effective. Because if you consider it's, it may well be a signal to the market that this is now a tool that the US and others are prepared to use, it could help stave off further uh, shocks in the future. And there's this careful balancing act the US needs to achieve of being clear it's willing to use the, this tool to try and, uh, and affect the market. But the other risk, if you try and release too much, is that relieves the pressure on OPEC plus, so, so the big oil producing countries and the, the consortia, um, to increase their production. So I think it's carefully calibrated to send a signal that's a tool they're willing to use. But ultimately, the resolution to, to this is going to be for OPEC plus to increase production at an agreed rate. And that's in their interest as well. Obviously, if you're an oil exporter, you want the oil price quite high because you get paid more for your oil, but you don't want it so high that it shuts down the global economy that, that, you're, that, that, that you're reliant on. So it's a careful balancing act. 50 million barrels from the Strategic Reserve is not a lot, but it is a key signaling mechanism. Thanks, Ben. Now, um, I get asked this question quite frequently. Gold, um, it's been quite uh, lackluster of recent um, how will potential hikes affect it? And, and what's the importance of gold then in a, in a diversified portfolio? So gold is an interesting asset class. Um, my perspective, and there's lots of different views on gold, my perspective is that it, it essentially lacks any real meaningful, real is probably bad, a, a bad use uh, of the works as a technical meaning. But I think you know it lacks fundamental intrinsic value. Most of it, aside from a few industrial uses and jewellery, the vast majority of it is an external view. People use it uh, as a store of wealth. They use it for a variety of reasons, all of which is extrinsic to what is fundamentally gold, which is just a you know a slightly shiner, shiny, good conducting metal, which is in relatively tight supply. And I think in terms of gold, you need to look at typically how it how it interacts with the markets. Um, people talk a lot about is it inflation hedge? How does it react with interest rates? Very often, the answer is, well, it's a connection of those two. And, you know, when we often talk about interest rates, most of us mean, you know, what's the base rate? What's the Bank of England rate at the moment, which is a nominal rate, it's just an absolute number. But actually, in terms of investing, it's more important to think about real rates, which is effectively interest rates after the effect of inflation. So, you know, if you have interest rates hypothetically at 1% and your inflation is running at 2%, then your real yield is minus 1%. And that's the way really to look at it. And the reason I highlight that, if you look back through history, generally, the gold price is heavily influenced by changes in, in real interest rates. Um, and what that means in a portfolio, if inflation sort of stabilizes or indeed uh, becomes more subdued, whilst interest rates rise, then that's probably not a great environment for gold. And in that regard, you know, it, it's, it's often the same with, with um, some types of government bonds. 
if you have rising uh, interest rates and, and falling uh, inflation expectations, things like uh, inflation-protected securities, uh, index-linked bonds, and so forth, suffer as well. So some similarities there. And I think the reason to hold it, um, I think it acts a good diversifier in the portfolio. So you want things that can uh, provide uh, potentially a little bit of lowly correlated return when you do have these market shocks. And market shocks by, by their nature are unforeseeable um, and can be quite impactful in a portfolio. So it helps smooth that ride by protecting uh, you or offsetting a little bit when broad markets are falling. The other reason I think it does have a place in portfolios, if you consider most people's portfolios will have quite a lot of exposure to things like equities, uh, is often the case. They can do okay in a, in a gently rising inflationary environment. But if inflation gets too far out of hand, then, then they can suffer. And I think it's useful to have something in a portfolio. If you do have an inflation shock uh, that central banks struggle to respond to, as those real rates fall, people may uh, look to things like gold um, to, to, to try and help their portfolios. And that's also at a time when central banks, uh, let's remember, I, I think central banks would struggle to get too far ahead with interest rate hikes. We've highlighted before, central banks need to come off these emergency lows. But given the high level of indebtedness across the world, um, the world is now a lot more sensitive to interest rates than it's likely to have been historically. So I think central banks would often find themselves behind the curve. So I think there are uh, attractive points to have gold in a portfolio, partly uh, to offer diversification benefits uh, against the unknown, partly if you do think there's a risk that inflation gets out of hand, it's useful to have those in there. Not necessarily saying it always make a positive return in and of itself. We often find those periods that gold might be struggling, as we've seen recently, it hasn't had a great run, but other parts of your portfolio likely to be doing disproportionately well, for example, equities. So it is useful to have things in the portfolio that perform in different parts of, uh, of the market cycle that helps smooth your long-term returns. And that's important, I think, to a lot of client portfolios. Thanks, Ben. And, um, and lastly, following the, uh, the US-China summit, um, will the Biden administration seek to improve relationships uh, with China or, um, or is the lack of the, the joint statement from the summit, is, is that a shape of things to come? Um, I, I think, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm totally sick on the fence, but I think both can be true. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to nuance. I think it's worth highlighting in a broad strategic sense, the position of the US government hasn't really changed. Now, President Trump, previous president, was very focused on these short-term metrics, the trade deficit, and other aspects that aren't, you know, aren't really a core issue. The fact that you know American consumers were consuming more uh, than they were exporting is is a relatively minor issue. And I think we actually highlighted before some of the short-term aspects can be a hindrance. Um, but you know, the U.S. government is a much broader beast, and the U.S. for a long time has been concerned about some strategic implications. And I think what we're seeing now is much more of a refocusing on those strategic elements, the strategic rivalries, energy security, uh, control or ability to control things like technology um, and the two largest uh, economic powers in the world sort of vying for, for areas of supremacy in, uh, in, in different um, economic and, and geopolitical domains. And that's what I think we're seeing at the moment. What I think is positive, even if there wasn't a joint statement, it does seem clear that, that both sides at least want to have some sort of structure to their relationship that isn't the animosity and the unpredictability that we saw before. That's where things, I, I think, 
can can become sticky. And that's where we got drawn into uh, the trade war between the US, China, and that broadened out. And that's not helpful in the grand scheme. Now, actually, President Trump has probably done President Biden a bit of a favour. The fact he was the one to put in tariffs means that Biden inherits inherits this um, this position that does give him some leverage and some bargaining power. So actually, it's not not the worst thing in the world that there are already these tariffs on. It, it adds, said, some of that leverage. And I think what it really does do is the meeting, even without that joint statement, as, as, as you highlight, it at least starts to establish the framework and the structure for how the world's largest economies can work together. And that's going to be important. And I think what you see in, in some of the, the indications, there's a willingness to sort of separate out different aspects by work stream rather than having every relationship tinged with with, with the with these tensions. Most importantly, particularly uh, in, in the, the light of, uh, of the, the environmental concerns, the sense the US and China can start working more constructively together where their interests align, such as climate change, whilst keeping some of the more strategic areas and some of those rivalries, um, you know, without resolving those. That's a positive, and that's a sign of, a, I think, a, a positive and grown-up relationship where you can acknowledge we can work together on these, that's fine. These areas we'll, we'll, we'll maintain, um, you know, we still need to work further, negotiate, and there can be tension in one area without necessarily uh, impacting the others. And that, I think, is the way the US and China have been heading for a while. They haven't got to be positive uh, relationships, but I think they need to be cordial uh, without causing huge disruptions. And I think that's probably what they've achieved most recently. Thanks, Ben. And um, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Um, thanks very much for your comments, Ben. It's been very insightful listening to you. Um, we'll be back again in January next year with a new episode. Um, if you've got any feedback, questions, comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. And thanks very much for listening.